0: I'm Joe Graydon. And I'm Terry Graydon. Welcome to this podcast of The People's Pharmacy. You can find previous podcasts and more information on a range of health topics at peoplespharmacy.com. For the last 30 years, doctors have been promoting the concept of evidence-based medicine. What does that really mean? This is The People's Pharmacy with Terry and Joe Graydon.
1: Evidence-based medicine certainly seems desirable. Compared to opinion-based medicine, I think we'd all prefer to have our treatments founded on highly reliable and relevant clinical trials. Our
0: guest today argues that the pharmaceutical industry has become adept at manipulating research. Has this compromised the practice of medicine?
1: Communication about study findings may also be misleading, Some television commercials are designed to distract more than inform.
0: Coming up on The People's Pharmacy, we'll talk to the author of The Illusion of Evidence-Based Medicine.
1: In The People's Pharmacy health headlines, aspirin has been around for more than a century, and doctors are still figuring out the best way to use it. Initially, it was seen primarily as a pain reliever. However, after the Physician's Health Study was published in 1989, scientists started looking at it as a way to prevent heart attacks. That double-blind, placebo-controlled trial determined that low-dose aspirin reduced the risk of heart attacks among middle-aged male doctors by 44%. Now, though, the United States Preventive Services Task Force has updated its recommendations on aspirin to prevent initial heart attacks and strokes. After reviewing all the studies and modeling the benefits and risks, the task force recommends that doctors consult with patients between 40 and 59 years old. For those with a 10% chance of cardiovascular disease over the next 10 years, low-dose aspirin may make sense. But only people unlikely to have a bleeding problem should try this, since aspirin can also increase that risk. Moreover, the task force suggests that aspirin, to prevent an initial heart attack, does not make sense for those over 60. The benefit for the younger age group was modest. For people who've already had heart attacks or diagnosed heart disease, aspirin is often part of the therapy, especially when supervised by a cardiologist.
0: A diagnostic test that's become quite popular among many cardiologists is called the coronary artery calcium or CAC score. It utilizes an x-ray of the heart to detect calcium in the walls of major arteries. This heart CT scan technology is used to determine plaque buildup and assess heart disease. How good is coronary calcium score at predicting the risk for a future heart attack? A systematic review and meta-analysis published in JAMA Internal Medicine reports that the CAC score, quote, offers modest gain, may often be outweighed by cost, rates of incidental findings, and radiation risks. The authors conclude that, quote, at present, no evidence suggests that adding coronary artery calcium score to traditional risk scores provides clinical benefit.
1: Have you had COVID-19? How would you know? New research suggests that nearly 60% of Americans have been infected with SARS-CoV-2. That includes roughly three out of four children. The CDC determined these rates based on blood tests for antibodies produced during infection. This level, which was established on tests run through February 2022, is twice the rate seen in December 2021. The greatest increase during that Omicron surge was among children and teens, perhaps because they were less likely to be fully vaccinated. People over 65, on the other hand, had the slightest increase. About one-third of them have antibodies to the virus. Case rates of COVID-19 are up dramatically in some communities, and hospitalization rates are also starting to climb. So far, though, death rates have remained steady.
0: With COVID cases rising, there's a push to make the antiviral drug Paxlovid more accessible to patients. This combination drug can reduce the severity of the infection if taken shortly after symptoms appear. There are two caveats, however. First, it can interact with a great many medications, including statins, which are taken by tens of millions of people. Another possible concern involves the recurrence of symptoms and even positive COVID tests after patients complete their five-day course of treatment with Paxlovid. So far, there are individual reports of people becoming ill again shortly after finishing the antiviral drug. No one yet knows how common this rebound effect may be, but it's worrisome.
1: Rates of Lyme disease have been rising dramatically in many parts of the country. That's because the deer tick that carries the infection-causing bacteria is expanding its territory. Dogs can be vaccinated against Lyme disease, but a vaccine for humans was abandoned decades ago. Now, Pfizer and Valneva are collaborating to develop a new Lyme vaccine. Clinical trials report promising protection in both adults and children. And that's the health news from the People's Pharmacy this week. Welcome to The People's Pharmacy. I'm Terry Graydon.
0: And I'm Joe Graydon. For centuries, doctors based their practice of medicine on observation and experience. Once medical schools were established, doctors relied upon their mentors for guidance. Sometimes these treatments were effective, but often they were later discovered to be unhelpful or even counterproductive.
1: Starting in the 1990s, though, doctors began to embrace the concept of evidence-based medicine. The idea was to shift clinical decision-making from intuition and prior experience to scientific, clinically relevant research. That sounds terrific, but there have been some challenges in its implementation.
0: To help us understand what went wrong, we turned to Dr. Lehman McHenry, He is a bioethicist and emeritus professor of philosophy at California State University, Northridge. He's the author, with Dr. John Giordini, of The Illusion of Evidence-Based Medicine, Exposing the Crisis of Credibility in Clinical Research.
1: Welcome to The People's Pharmacy, Dr. Lehman McHenry.
2: Thank you very much, Joe and Terry, for inviting me. And I want to praise the uh, good work that you've done at the People's Pharmacy and informing uh, the public about dangerous drugs. Well, thank you. And we're delighted to have you with
0: us today. You know, Dr. McHenry, the title of your book, The Illusion, The Illusion of Evidence-Based Medicine, it has me a little tongue-tied. I was going to say it's provocative. Um, maybe it's heretical. You know, we've all been worshiping at the fountain of evidence-based medicine for so long to think that there, there might be an illusion. Wow, that's that's hard to swallow. But maybe before we even get there, you can tell us what the heck is evidence-based medicine?
2: Sure. Well, first of all, I think that the title has misled some people into believing that uh, my co-author, Dr. John Giardini, and I are opposed to evidence-based medicine, but uh, nothing could be further from the truth. Uh, we are proponents of evidence-based medicine. We think that it is one of the uh, most important paradigms in um, science and specifically in medicine. And what we're trying to do is rescue it from the destructive hands of the pharmaceutical industry. So um, to answer your question, evidence-based medicine is a hierarchy of evidence. And in this hierarchy, you can sort of think of a triangle and at the base of the triangle would be the least uh, reliable evidence, which might be things like expert judgments, prescriber's own uh, experience with drugs, um, mechanistic reasoning, uh, consensus committees, things of this sort, and then to a higher level of reliability, which would be uh, observational studies. So these would be studies that would be conducted but without a control. So, so for example, let's say someone just gives a drug two patients at a hospital and just observes how they do in the course of treatment. Uh, And then at the apex of the triangle, we would have the placebo-controlled randomized clinical trials. So the idea is that at the apex of the triangle, we have the most rigorous science in the results that we're getting from the randomized clinical trials.
1: Well, modern medicine really has embraced the randomized, placebo-controlled clinical trial. What's gone wrong?
2: Well, evidence-based medicine um, is a bit like what Gandhi once said when he was um, visiting England, and he was asked uh, the question, what do you think of Western civilization? And he said, oh, I I think it should be a good idea. Evidence-based medicine should be a good idea, and indeed it is. But the trouble is it's been corrupted by the pharmaceutical industry. And the main problem is that something like 90% of the clinical trials that are conducted today are done so by the pharmaceutical industry. So what we've got is a problem of the fox watching the hen house here. We've got the most important aspect of science, which is the testing. And the testing is actually being conducted by those who have the profit interest in mind. Well, I think a lot of
0: people think, ah, the FDA to the rescue. Uh, Certainly the pharmaceutical industry says, oh, the FDA, they're so hard on us. They make life very difficult. Hey, we spend hundreds of millions of
1: dollars. I think there's a general misperception, actually, uh, among the public that the FDA does tests which As we three know, it does not.
2: Right. So the the pharmaceutical industries pay a fee to have their drugs uh, considered for a license. And uh, the companies submit to the FDA uh, their data, their um, final clinical study reports and uh, very often, what happens is, you know, you have a, an overworked FDA, and and um, they're not quite catching all of the ways in which the industry tricks us into uh, believing that what they've submitted is reliable and honest. Uh, when and I found in my um, research into these reports that are submitted to the FDA, that they are just as faulty as the publications in the medical journals. So, the FDA is part of the problem here. Part of the problem here is that government isn't quite doing its job of regulating. Instead, what we've got is a kind of situation where the regulators are treating the industry as their clients. Well, I guess a
0: lot of the health professionals who are listening to us are wondering, well, what does this guy McHenry mean when he says the illusion of evidence-based medicine? I mean, isn't evidence-based medicine evidence-based medicine? Where's the illusion?
2: Well, the illusion, once again, I think, is all of the different facets of the industry working together. To create this appearance of genuine rigorous science, and that I think is an, is the illusion. And so, so when we talk about all of these different elements, uh, Dr. Giardini and I are talking about the first of all the pharmaceutical industry, secondly the medical communications companies, and thirdly the public relations firms that they hire to promote drugs. And what we have, I think, in the end is marketing masquerading as science.
1: Give us an example, if you would, please.
2: Let's take my favorite example, which is ghostwriting. This has become an absolute scandal in about the past uh, 20 years when we discover that medical communications companies, which are basically public relations companies that specialize in medicine, they hire ghostwriters to create templates and write medical journal articles in the names of prominent academics at universities. And these articles get published in the medical journals, and the public and the prescribing physicians very often have no idea who actually wrote this manuscript and how much of that manuscript was manipulated by industry executives and ghostwriters working for the medical communications companies once again to create the illusion of real science. And these people are professionals at what they do. They can make the uh, ghostwritten fraudulent science look exactly like the most rigorous science that could possibly uh, attain that uh, title.
1: Dr. McHenry, one of the things that drives us crazy is when we read about a trial in a medical journal and all of the data are expressed as relative risk rather than absolute risk. And you dive into the middle of the journal and you look at the results and it's impossible to actually discover what the absolute difference is between the treatment and the placebo or the control this is part of the problem of communication, isn't it?
2: Yes. And this is one of the tricks of the trade, uh, along with many others that the uh, industry uses very effectively to manipulate the data, present it in the medical journals as, as if once again, you know, it's being honestly reported there's all kinds of tricks th- that they use that to um for example in the coding of adverse events a lot of times uh something is disguised by the very words they use to code the adverse events so that so that there it is hiding in plain sight you're you're not really able to sort of discern from reading um the published medical journal article just exactly what this is so one example of this is with the, the problem of uh, antidepressant-induced suicidality with um, the SSRI antidepressants. In the case of a study 329, a famous study now of manipulation of science, they use the term emotional lability to cover up suicidality.
1: You're listening to Dr. Lehman McHenry. He's a bioethicist and emeritus professor of philosophy at California State University, Northridge. He and Dr. John Giardini have written The Illusion of Evidence-Based Medicine, exposing the crisis of credibility in clinical research. We do have a disclosure. Dr. McHenry is a research consultant for the Los Angeles law firm Baum, Headland, Ariste, and... Goldman. It's through the law firm that he became aware of the problems with evidence-based medicine and worked with Dr. Giordini.
0: After the break, we'll talk more about how drug companies hide side effects behind innocuous-sounding words.
1: What do randomized controlled trials really tell us?
0: Why should we care about studies that focus on surrogate endpoints?
1: Some studies of SSRI antidepressants were extremely misleading.
0: What about the Vioxx story? That was the heavily promoted arthritis drug that was pulled off the market because of side effects.
1: Why doesn't the threat of litigation seem to change the behavior of big pharmaceutical companies?
0: Might transparency be the answer?
1: You're listening to the People's Pharmacy with Joe and Terry Graydon. This podcast is made possible in part by Cocovia, maker of high-potency cocoflavanol supplements. Cocoflavanols are among the most well-studied plant-based nutrients, backed by 20 years of scientific research.
0: CocoVia Cardio Health is available in capsules or powder providing 500 milligrams of coco flavanols daily. This supports better blood flow and vascular performance.
1: Cocovia also offers Memory Plus, a supplement with 750 milligrams of coco flavanols. This product is backed by four different clinical studies, demonstrating significant improvement in several aspects of memory.
0: Cocovia flavanols offer you all the benefits of chocolate without the sugar. Get 15% off your order by using the discount code PEOPLES15. That discount code, PEOPLES15. More information at cocovia.com.
1: Welcome back to The People's Pharmacy. I'm Terry Graydon.
0: And I'm Joe Graydon. The People's Pharmacy is brought to you in part by Cocovia, the maker of high potency cocoa flavanol supplements that support cognitive and cardiovascular health. More information at cocovia.com.
1: Once upon a time, drug commercials on television were limited to over the counter products like Anacin, bismol or the fizz-fizz heartburn remedy Alka-Seltzer. For many years now, though, prescription drug manufacturers have been promoting their powerful products directly to consumers through highly produced television ads that often feature dogs or kids, and always people having a lot of fun.
0: The FDA requires these ads to mention the most serious or common complications, but If you've watched any TV recently, you know that commercials may be set up to distract and confuse viewers when it comes to adverse drug reactions.
1: Words like ketoacidosis, bacterial infection in the skin of the perineum, angioedema, and sulfonylurea are technical terms, and they might confuse a lot of viewers. Are drug companies trying to obscure the side effects of their medications?
0: Dr. Lehman McHenry is a bioethicist and emeritus professor of philosophy at California State University, Northridge. He's the author, with Dr. John Giardini, of The Illusion of Evidence-Based Medicine, Exposing the Crisis of Credibility in Clinical Research.
1: Dr. McHenry, the idea that drug companies are able to essentially hide adverse effects with the wording that they choose as you've just described that um, in fact it's really difficult to discover what we want to know about side effects about of various medications by reading the clinical trials that seems like a big flaw
2: Isn't it is yes indeed it is and it's a it's a common problem I think because in this particular case, what you had, is that there were uh, several patients in the clinical trial who had become suicidal and they were on the active medication as opposed to the placebo or the comparator. And, and what happened in this case is emotional lability masked the seriousness of the of the adverse event of suicidality in this case. So what exactly is emotional ability. Well, even psychiatrists uh, reading the journals didn't quite know what it meant. but generally, it's it's you know anything roughly from crying all the way up to a suicide attempt. Well,
0: one of the problems that you discuss in your book and that we've been concerned about for years is that standardized, randomized clinical trials, the RCTs, as they're abbreviated, are really designed to achieve efficacy and to get FDA approval. They're not really designed to discover adverse effects. And I wonder if you could explain that in a little more detail.
2: Well, I might not be the best person to explain that particular sort of concept, but I think it is true that what they are what they're doing is attempting to get their d- drugs approved by the FDA and the bar is generally uh two positive clinical trials so you've already sort of set the bar uh, up in such a way as it is all about efficacy it's about it's about showing you know that this new drug or this me too version of the drug is better than the comparator or what's already out there on the market. And and the trouble is, as you've correctly stated, we really don't get an accurate picture of the drug's safety profile.
1: Dr. McHenry, in the illusion of evidence-based medicine, you suggest that part of this is due to perverse research priorities. Can you explain, please?
2: Yes, thank you for asking that question. Um, I think that what happens, especially in first world countries like the United States, the research priorities get perverted in the sense that the relatively unimportant conditions that people will pay a lot of money for end up getting um trials and end up getting licenses and end up getting promoted in television advertisements, whereas the most serious diseases around the world uh, get neglected because they're not as profitable as those conditions which may be relatively trivial and are affecting people in wealthy first world countries. Uh, now, that's not to uh, to say anything negative about you know, the, the genuine breakthroughs that we have with, with important essential medicines. But as you probably noticed when you turn the television set on, you know, the, the majority of the drugs that are being promoted there are not what we might call essential medicines.
0: One of the things that has been of great concern to me is the idea of what we call surrogate endpoints, it seems like the industry is very good at measuring things like cholesterol, maybe blood sugar, uh, even something called amyloid beta in the case of Alzheimer's disease. But most people really don't care that much about their cholesterol level or their blood pressure or their blood sugar or even their amyloid beta. What they want is does this drug do something for me that I actually care about? Will it reduce my likelihood of having a heart attack, of having a stroke, of getting Alzheimer's disease, or slowing down something like Alzheimer's disease? Can you help us understand the difference between a surrogate endpoint and
2: something that people really care about? Well, I think that surrogate endpoints are the sorts of things that will make your your laboratory results look good. Your numbers will look good, uh, when you, when you go to the doctor and have your blood test. But of course, what we really want is something that changes your quality of life or, or gives you a prolonged quality of life or actually prevents, uh, a heart attack or things of this sort. And, and so, the, so the problem is once again, you know, that a lot of these clinical trials are being designed and conducted and reported based upon um, making the numbers look good. And I think that this is also related to something else, which is the difference between statistical significance and clinical significance. When you run a trial, you might get a clinical trial that, that gives you a, what's called a p-value of statistical significance, which, which is a, a, a value to show, uh, that you've got a, you know, a positive result in terms of the, performance of the drug versus the placebo. But clinical s- significance is something altogether different, you know, that it makes a real difference that, uh, you know, patients see a, a difference, an improvement in their lives, that, that sort of thing.
1: Dr. McHenry, you and your co-author have done in-depth analyses of a couple of uh, clinical trials of antidepressants but you also mention a few other medications that perhaps we needed to be paying closer attention to for example viox which of course after a big introduction and making a lot of money had to be pulled off the market tell us a little bit more about that please
2: yeah sure thank you well we focus on two clinical trials, one that was conducted by GlaxoSmithKline and another one by Forrest Laboratories on uh, SSRI antidepressants for children and adolescents. And what we discovered was in these cases, these two trials, that they were fraudulently conducted and reported to the medical community. And prescribing physicians relied upon these flawed journal articles when they prescribe the drugs to children, in many cases off label. But we realized that we only had two cases here. And and so someone could complain and say, well, you know, you're cherry picking here. You're only you're only selecting these two trials and 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 that's not representative of all of medicine. So it's the sort of fallacy of the hasty generalization. So in the beginning of of the book what we did was discuss a lot of scandals in medicine recently to show that this is a much larger problem than just uh antidepressants for children and the case of vioxx uh, was 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 a, v- a very important one because as you might know they hid all sorts of adverse events relating to uh, heart attacks and strokes and they were caught red-handed
1: who caught them and how
2: well i think that this is where um a, a litigation comes into the picture because well, what happens is uh, p- patients are harmed and they sue and what happens in this in once you sue is there is what's called discovery which experts go into the archives of the pharmaceutical industry and they find uh, all of the email correspondence, all of the reports, and and do a painstaking analysis to piece this together to discover just exactly what went wrong.
1: Now, Dr. McHenry, when you are talking about solutions, you say litigation really doesn't make a big difference in terms of how the pharmaceutical industry conducts itself. Why not?
2: Well, because it's built into their business model. They know uh, that that they're going to be dealing with litigation, and they have calculated that no matter how much they pay out in uh, litigation, it's not going to come anywhere close to the profits they're going to get from going ahead with these um, drugs on the market, knowing quite well in advance just exactly what the risks are
0: one of the things that uh, has fascinated me is that there have been some attempts to overcome the illusion of the evidence-based trial problem and and one of them is something called transparency so if you go to a medical journal and you look at some you know exciting new research that gets headlines all across the country you can find out who's getting what from whom. you You can see that, oh, this famous professor at Harvard, yeah, he was taking money from four different pharmaceutical companies. Why isn't that the solution?
2: Well, I think because the, the pharmaceutical companies are like the the hedra in Greek mythology. you 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 cut off one head and three more grow in its place. So what you have in this case is that they are enormously effective in just maneuvering out of the way of whatever new regulations are are put in place. And the uh, people that work for the medical communications companies are very good at working with the companies to, you know, conceal in various ways what's really going on here. So, for example, there might be a, um, a statement of conflict of interest at the end of the medical journal article that uh, that states just exactly how much money was paid to these investigators or to the people who wrote the manuscript or things of that sort. But I, I have found that nobody is checking up on this. The journals are not policing themselves and, and what Dr. Giardini and I did was we wrote to the medical journals. And we said, here is, here is the results of our research. We found that this clinical trial was completely corrupt. Here is the medical journal article that we published on it. And you published it. We are asking you to write a correction or, or, or a, a retraction of this article. And they do not even reply to us.
1: I understand that even when a scientist writes to them and says, "I found some very serious flaws in this journal article," frequently it will take the editors of a journal a very long time to respond, if at all, to a request for retraction.
2: Um, It hardly ever happens, and and in in the case of what just undeniable evidence, um, they circle the wagons and um, Stonewall, and nothing ever happens. So, I mean, just to give you an example, the journal article in the Journal of the American Academy of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry that was the focus of a $3 billion judgment against GlaxoSmithKline is still unretracted.
0: So what is the answer, Dr. McHenry? I mean, how do we get more transparency, how do we get better honest data how do patients actually begin to assess the clinical effectiveness of any particular medication that they're taking how do they get their doctor to give them absolute risk reduction real side effect information how, how do we make it better
2: well you're 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 touching on perhaps the most important point something that i mentioned earlier Which was, it's absolutely scandalous that the FDA and the government allow the drug companies to test their own products. So the most important recommendation we have is that testing be taken out of the hands of the pharmaceutical industry so that there's more reliability in the results of the testing and Uh, This should be done by government and universities, perhaps in collaboration, to make sure that testing of pharmaceuticals is independent of the profit motive, and the pharmaceutical industry would pay a tax to have their drugs tested instead of doing the testing themselves. Now, we argue that once this recommendation would be put into place, a lot of the other problems would disappear there would be no reason for so-called key opinion leaders to go out on the the circuit and promote drugs at dinner talks there would be no motivation for ghostwriters to fraudulently misrepresent the results in the medical journals and and perhaps we hope no more television advertisements
1: well we would definitely be on board with that we're we're interested in uh... At the very least, to getting rid of misleading television ads, and from our perspective, a lot of them are misleading.
2: Yes, indeed they are, and and there there is a department within the FDA which is supposed to be the watchdog for these. Uh, and what what I've found is that by the time they get around to discovering the misrepresentation, the damage has been done. They made their money and they're and they're gone. You're
0: listening to Dr. Lehman McHenry. He's a bioethicist and emeritus professor of philosophy at California State University, Northridge. He and Dr. John Girardini wrote The Illusion of Evidence-Based Medicine, exposing the crisis of credibility in clinical research. By consulting for a Los Angeles law firm, he was able to see secret documents of drug companies that influenced his research into clinical trials.
1: It is time for us to take a short break. When we get back, we'll take a look at R-I-A-T. It stands for Restoring Invisible and Abandoned Trials.
0: Drug companies are not required to share unpublished studies, and they can choose not to publish studies with unfavorable results.
1: Do you know how effective your medicine actually is for treating your particular condition? What questions should you be asking your doctor to find out the likelihood that you'll benefit and the possibility you'll be harmed?
0: Drug makers invest a lot in opinion leaders. Why is that a problem?
1: Do academic scientists rely too much on the pharmaceutical industry for funding their research?
0: Is there still a place for observation and experience along with randomized clinical trials?
1: You're listening to The People's Pharmacy with Joe and Terry Graydon.
0: This podcast is brought to you in part by Kaya Biotics, organic probiotic supplements. These supplements are made in the USA with high-quality, sustainably sourced ingredients.
1: Originally developed in Germany, Kaya Biotics offers three different formulations with 15 carefully selected strains of bacteria. These are designed to increase the diversity of your gut flora and support your immune system. More information at k-a-y-a-biotics.com.
0: Welcome back to The People's Pharmacy. I'm Joe Graydon.
1: And I'm Terry Graydon. The People's Pharmacy is brought to you in part by Coco Via, offering plant-based nutrients in the form of flavanols for brain and heart health. Online at cocovia.com.
0: I love tennis. There was a time when a bad call by the line umpire went unchallenged. Now, there's instant replay that can verify whether a ball is in or out. The same type of technology has made a huge difference in football and basketball as well. Referees can review a close call from many different angles to determine the accuracy of their initial impression.
1: When it comes to drug trials, however, there's no such oversight. If a study shows no clinical benefit, it can disappear without a trace. Nobody has to publish it. Nobody has to read it. And nobody has to know about it.
0: The FDA requires two clinical trials to prove that a new medication is better than placebo, but it doesn't have any rules about how many trials the company has to run in order to produce two positive ones. That is one of the problems with the way evidence-based medicine works today.
1: We're talking with Dr. Lehman McHenry. He's a bioethicist and emeritus professor of philosophy at California State University, Northridge. Dr. McHenry and Dr. John Giordini have written The Illusion of Evidence-Based Medicine, Exposing the Crisis of Credibility in Clinical Research. Dr. McHenry, you
0: mentioned something called... R-I-A-T. I, I pronounce it I I don't know if that's the way it's supposed to be pronounced, but it's Restoring Invisible and Abandoned Trials. Oh, what, what's that all about?
2: Yes. This is the brainchild of um, Dr. Peter Doshi at the University of Maryland, who also happens to be an editor of the British Medical Journal, or the BMJ. Uh, we call it R-I-A-T and the riot, I think, was one of the most promising developments to rescue evidence-based medicine from the destructive hands of the pharmaceutical industry. So Dr. Doshi and his colleagues uh, created this uh, institution, I I should say, uh, whereby independent researchers would submit First of all, to the British Medical Journal, a call to action, which is a pr- proposal for uh, reanalyzing a trial that's suspected of being fraudulent. So this gets published in the, in the British Medical Journal, and then you put together a team of researchers, uh, and, and you do a, a reanalysis of the trial by going to the raw data and starting all over again. And seeing what what kind of results that you get. Now, this was brilliant with respect to study 329, which I mentioned earlier, because the researchers could actually get the raw data and begin all over again. But the problem in this case was that many times the pharmaceutical industries regard this as their intellectual property, it's their confidential information, and they don't give it out to anybody else. But in this particular case, there was a lawsuit, and part of the settlement of the lawsuit demanded that the data be be released to the public. So the riot was very promising in in, in this respect. And in this one instance, it paid off enormously. But, but the problem, as I mentioned earlier, is that you can't always get to the data.
0: And a lot of studies never get published, especially those negative studies. So- if a drug didn't work, didn't achieve statistical significance, the drug company doesn't have to publish it, doesn't have to submit it to the FDA. All they have to do for the FDA is submit two clinical trials that show
2: significance. There may have been two others that were a complete flop. Yeah, this is called the file drawer phenomenon uh, that they are they just file away the trials that, that are, are complete disasters. In other words, you know, they can't even get the medical communications companies to do the spin on them to make them look like they're positive. I mean, that's how bad they are. And in this case, you do not get, or, or let me put it, rephrase that, prescribing physicians don't get an accurate picture of the drug's profile when they're, they're only seeing two positive trials uh, that submitted to the FDA or get published in the medical journals compared to all of the other negative trials that are never going to be seen.
0: Dr. McHenry, how can people ask the right questions of their physicians, nurse practitioners, physician assistants, how, how can they find out how effective any particular medicine that they may be prescribed actually is? How well it will work to overcome whatever condition they're trying to treat?
2: Well, that is a really good question. Getting down to the concrete nitty-gritty uh, issues of how we can best take this information and act on it. And I, what I have discovered is, is that your a physician doesn't know. Your physician is being subjected to the same information uh, because it's all being controlled by the pharmaceutical industry and their marketing efforts. So it is extremely difficult to get to the truth. But I can tell you that one of the things that that's a take-home message for me, and that is that I I will not take any medications at all unless it's been demonstrated to me that these medications are safe and effective. And that's typically something that has been on the market for 20 or 30 years. So I'm highly skeptical about uh, so-called new miracles of pharmacology, which um, people tend to think that since it's new, uh, it must be something better. You
0: talked a moment ago about litigation and the fact that a lot of pharmaceutical companies have sort of baked into their budget resources, that if they get sued because a drug has caused harm, that they already have the ability to, to to pay for those kinds of costs. You suggest something a little bit more radical, and that is if a drug company has really Messed up big time. Either the drug didn't work as um, as well as they advertised it, or maybe caused some very serious, unpredicted consequences, or maybe even predicted ones that maybe the pharma executives should go to jail.
2: That's what we've been saying all along. That nothing is going to change until some of these people are held accountable, and and I must also include in that the academics at universities. Who get co-opted into the, the pharma marketing agenda and they betray their science, uh, for the sake of promoting drugs that, that are then subsequently discovered to be very harmful. I, I think that, that academics need to be held accountable too.
0: And Dr. McHenry, I think a lot of people assume that if a professor of internal medicine or dermatology or cardiology at a major medical institution is you know involved in the research, puts her name on that paper, goes out and talks to colleagues at medical meetings that 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 individual who has a great reputation, this this is really a terrific drug. I mean, you know, I, sign me up. And a lot of their colleagues are like, "Oh, well, if 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 Doctor Jones says it's good, then boy, it must be a a game changer. I'll start prescribing it too." Why is that a potential problem?
2: Well, these are what the industry calls key opinion leaders, and the key opinion leaders are academics at universities and medical centers. Which have an enormous influence on prescribers. And these people very often become uh, shills for the industry. They may unknowingly become co-opted into the marking agenda. They think that they're promoting science and they think that they're promoting drugs that are safe and effective, but the people in the marketing are giving them these messages to deliver. They're writing the script for them when they go out on the uh, to conferences or to give drug talks or publish these papers that are written for them in the medical journals. This is enormously problematic, and this is just exactly where the heart of the problem is.
1: And this has actually been going on for quite a long time. Back in 1991, I was an observer at the University of Michigan celebration of the centennial of the pharmacology department. And since Joe got his master's degree at uh, the University of Michigan— we were invited and we went to the celebration. And I remember one talk that really impressed me. This talk, and I can't tell you the name of the speaker. He's He was an elderly man at that time, so he's no longer on the planet. But he was the CEO of the Upjohn Pharmaceutical Company, And what he told the assembled academics there was that they were relying far too much on pharmaceutical funding for their research, and they needed to change. And I'll tell you, that audience was very uncomfortable, and they did not change. Uh, But obviously, this has been going on for really a long time
2: it has and it's gotten a lot worse i think in the last 30 years because of uh the, the universities have have failed to be the guardians of truth and the moral conscience of society they have, have have teamed up with the pharmaceutical industry to get that pharmaceutical industry money and there's the problem you know a lot of people have become very very much dependent on that in industry money, and that also includes medical journals. You suggest
0: that a lot of the articles that are published about pharmaceuticals may have skewed results. That is to say that the the pharmaceutical companies that are also involved in um, in that research they may have stacked the deck that. Clinical trials may be manipulated, and one of the examples you mentioned is something about what they call the comparator drug. In other words, you're you're comparing a wonderful, new, exciting, expensive, brand-name drug to something that's been on the market for maybe 20 or 30 years, and not only may it not be the best drug to compare to the new drug— maybe the dose is either too low or too high. Why is that problematic?
2: Well, because once again, they are designing a trial and making sure that by the choice of the comparator drug or the dose, uh, that they're going to ensure success. And, and the drug, the drug that is the um, one that they're, they're testing and promoting. Uh, so, in the case of study 329, paroxetine was being compared with amipramine, And uh, the dose of amipramine was what the authors of the RIAD article called elephant doses. And there it was right under their noses in the medical journal, the original medical journal publication, that the dose of amipramine was so high that it was going to cause adverse events in that particular group and make paroxetine look good by comparison.
0: Dr. McHenry, you have suggested that um, evidence-based medicine is the very highest, best form of research if it's not corrupted. But I fear sometimes that we have thrown the baby out with the bathwater in that for literally thousands of years, ever since Ever since there were healers, we have relied to a certain extent on experience, observation, the ability to say, oh, this person was bleeding. I did something and the bleeding stopped. Well, you don't need a randomized controlled trial just as you wouldn't want a randomized control trial for parachutes on airplanes. Right. Uh, you don't want people to jump out of airplanes without parachutes. So I guess the question is, is there still a place for observation and experience?
2: Yes, yes, there is. And um, I, just to answer that question, I, th- I think it's it's quite true that we have a lot of of, of our medical tradition that has not been tested, which we already know to be effective. And the trouble is, though, that a lot of times uh, what evidence-based medicine teaches us once we do the clinical trials is is it's something that we've long regarded as part of the tradition uh, turns out to be not effective at all, um, just as good as placebo or uh, actually harmful. So, uh, the, you know, the clinical trials p- play that important role here. Uh, but just to finish up on this point, uh, as a kind of concluding take home message, it's something I call the paradox of evidence-based medicine, which is if you really take on board what's going on with the testing being conducted by the pharmaceutical industry and you realize that you cannot rely upon that which is at the top of the hierarchy of evidence-based medicine, well, then what exactly is it you're left with? The paradox now is that the the whole structure of evidence-based medicine gets turned upside down, and the physician is basically left with his own pres- prescribing experience.
1: Which certainly leaves quite a bit to be desired, especially if the person does not have very much experience. Right.
2: Well, it just becomes idiosyncratic. Uh, But, you know, what what else are you going to to trust when you realize how badly corrupted the, the clinical trials are?
1: Dr. Lehman McHenry, thank you so much for talking with us on The People's Pharmacy today.
0: It's been my pleasure. You've been listening to Dr. Lehman McHenry, he is a bioethicist and emeritus professor of philosophy at California State University, Northridge. Together with Dr. John Giardini, he wrote The Illusion of Evidence-Based Medicine, Exposing the Crisis of Credibility in Clinical Research. Dr. McHenry is a research consultant for the Los Angeles law firm Baum, Hedlund, Aristelle and Goldman. It's through the law firm that he became aware of the problems with evidence-based medicine and worked with Dr. Giardini on the illusion of evidence-based medicine based medicine.
1: Lynn Siegel produced today's show, Al Wadarski engineered. Dave Graydon edits our interviews. The People's Pharmacy theme music is by B.J. Lederman.
0: This show is a co-production of North Carolina Public Radio, WUNC, with The People's Pharmacy.
1: The People's Pharmacy is brought to you in part by Cocovia, maker of high-potency cocoflavanol supplements that support both cognitive and cardiovascular health. More information at cocovia.com.
0: Today's show is number 1,299. You can find it online at peoplespharmacy.com. You can subscribe to our podcast through your favorite podcast provider. We post the show on our website on Monday morning. If you look for the show notes, you can post a comment to let us know your thoughts about today's show.
1: We'd especially like to get your feedback about prescription drug ads on television. What do you find helpful? And what do you find objectionable? Have you seen any commercials that seem confusing or misleading? At peoplespharmacy.com,
0: you can sign up for our free online newsletter to get the latest news about COVID 19 and other important health stories. When we write about drug research, we try to include absolute risk reduction figures as well as relative risk reduction. They're usually a lot less
1: impressive. By subscribing to our newsletter, you also have regular access to our weekly podcast. You can find out ahead of time which topics we'll be covering.
0: In Durham, North Carolina, I'm Joe Graydon.
1: And I'm Terry Graydon. Thank you so much for listening. Please join us again next week. Thank you for listening to the People's Pharmacy Podcast. It's an honor and a pleasure to bring you our award-winning program week in and week out. But producing and distributing this show as a free podcast takes time and costs money. If you like what we
0: do and you'd like to help us continue to produce high-quality, independent healthcare journalism, please consider chipping in.